Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Good evening, Weekend Variety Wireless Hour 2, if you've downloaded it on the podcast somehow. And a very good evening to you. Uh, heads up for tomorrow night. Um, we're going to have another outsider tale from Jared Hindmarsh. You know, we've been doing a lot of those uh, Grant Smithies things about lyrics and spoken word stuff because it meshes well with the poetry. But there's an utterly charming connection between our poet and poet reader tomorrow night, obviously the last of the affair, Michelle Leggett. She's an academic at Auckland University and was New Zealand Poet Laureate. She's good at this stuff. And the poem and the poet she has picked has got a very uh, strong connection with the subject of Jared Hindmarsh's Outsider which tomorrow night will be John Douglas Stark, a madman in many ways, fought in World War I. It was a toss-up whether to give him a Victoria Cross or a court-martial. That kind of character. Another reminder, uh, we're going to be playing my favourite interview, the most fun I had doing an interview, uh, was when John Cooper Clark turned up, as promised, to spin a few records and just talk about stuff. We ended up not playing much music because he's just such a great chat. They're just so unaffected and charming. This sort of thing. You know, recently I just acquired a, a sure mic, you know, uh, one of those Art Deco chrome jobbies that looks like an Aztec temple on a stick. Oh, yeah, you yeah. You know the ones I mean? Talk looks show like, hosts looks like the radiator on a 1936 cord. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know the one I mean, yeah. that, the, the posers, the ultimate poser, Mike. Letterman? The one that James Brown sings through when yeah. he does please, please, please on the Sammy it's show, something, right? It's something big to grab. Yeah, like a, you can treat it like a girl's face. <laughs> Man, he's a character, and he was just fabulous when he toured New Zealand earlier this year. Did he just do one show on all? Oh, who cares? It's all over now. Uh, Shall we hear just a little bit of Beasley Street if you haven't heard of uh, John Cooper Clark's work previously? Man, he's good. He really is good. Fabulous poet. The... We won't be able to hear it all, but uh, this is dark and grimy, and some of the lines are just outstanding. I asked him if it was a real street, and he said yes. Far from crazy pavements, the taste of silver spoons, a clinical arrangement on a dirty afternoon, where the fecal germs of Mr. Freud are rendered obsolete. The legal term is null and void in the case of Beasley Streets. In the cheap seats where murder breeds, somebody is out of breath. Sleep is a luxury they don't need. A sneak 
Lines. Go look it up online. Beasley Street, John Cooper Clark. Next up, uh, James Crute, When the Bounty Came to New Zealand. The movie, that is. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. At the movies with James Crute on Radio Live. James Crute, always reliable. Hi, how are you? Very good, very good. Uh, Graham, I must just say that yesterday at the Press Building in Christchurch, we played a Christmas album in your honour, the Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass Christmas album. Oh, I love Herb Alpert, but they, why on earth is it Alpert? There are no Alperts, there are only Alberts. Is this a Portuguese thing? It may be, yes, like Jose. <laughs> All right. Yes, but no, a little bit of festive cheer, and I asked our uh, Master of Ceremonies down there if we could play that album especially for you. Oh, thank you. Oh, yes. that, that's right. marvellous. I love a bit of Herb Alpert. One of the most tremendous music videos you could ever imagine, him running along the beach with an orchestra in a suit. Is that Rise or one of the other ones? No, I can't recall. Oh, and, right. Anyway. Well, Excellent. Thank you, James. And right. let's talk about uh, a few subjects. Your First of all, let's talk about the bounty. And um, you've done a retrospective little piece of when the stars came to town. This is a while ago now. This shall remind you a little bit of what was the bounty was all about. 200 years ago, two friends set out on an impossible voyage. Tahiti. Fletcher, I want you to sail with me again. They made a journey through hell and arrived at this perfect place only to become mortal enemies. Their names were Fletcher Christian and William Bly. Their ship was the Bounty. He was a sailor of brilliance. In my opinion, we should put a In my opinion, we should not, sir. We keep on our course. He was looking pretty fit in the trailer too, wasn't he? Look, I just love how you can tell what era it's from based on the tinkly Cassia tone synthesizer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It changed his life forever. I think your brain has been overheated, sir. Your body overindulged in sexual excess. I have done no more than any natural man would do. There'll be no more mixing with the damned degenerate natures of these islands. You comprehend my meaning, sir? God! Anthony Hopkins. Mel Gibson. Lawrence Olivier. Bloody hell. Edward Fox. Wasn't this Christian a friend of yours? He was, sir. The Bounty. <sighs> now, yeah, it's well worth looking back at because that lineup, oh my God. Well, hang on. That, that doesn't even tell you about the, the. And introducing, basically. There was a guy called Liam Neeson on it, there was a guy called Daniel Day Lewis on it. Um, the John Sessions, the uh, actor who, of course, is most famous for Whose Line Is It Anyway? Hugh Grant wanted to be in it, but couldn't because he didn't have his SAG card or his British equivalent. Um, and was it Gary Oldman turned them down because he wanted to do some play in rural Britain instead? <laughs> Unbelievable turnout. 
It is. And look, and this is such an... I mean, this is the New Zealand production that New Zealand doesn't want to claim. Essentially, really, because it was financed by the UK and the US, so there were no New Zealand dollars involved. They built a ship five years before they actually (laughs) needed it. So originally, this version of The Bounty was supposed to be directed by David Lean. Oh, okay. but he became too ill, and uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the writer. I keep thinking Robert Bolt, but that can't be right. Mm. Um, and so they built this ship up in Fongaray, I think it was. Oh, I bet it's Orem's Marine. No, something like that. I don't, like, was it a wooden see, ship? It might have been Alex Baxter. In the late 70s, and they didn't really use it until about 83. And Roger Donaldson uh, was supposed to, he and Ian Mune were supposed to be writing the sequel to Conan the Barbarian. Mm. Um, and Dino De Laurentiis got the right to the bounty and said, no, 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 boys, you don't want to be doing that. I've got this project, which uh-huh. is actually we could do partly in your backyard. Right. And, and then they, so apparently Hopkins was attached and um, they just gathered the rest of the cast together. And it's just amazing, looking back at it now, just who they got. Yeah. There's no one left back at the RNA. <laughs> Essentially, and Donaldson managed to persuade them to shoot as much as possible of the scenes that would traditionally have been shot in England in New Zealand, I think partly because that boat was here. So obviously they used Morea for all the French Polynesian stuff. Yeah. Um, and But yeah, they, they spent a lot of time in Gisborne. And in terms of the Kiwi actors, We Kuki Ka, or the um, brilliant Māori actor, was a part of it. And John Gadsby has a significant role. Oh, I've got to go and get this out and see it again. And, of course, the famous thing, we were so starstruck that that Gisborne actually changed its name to Gibson uh, for the duration. Well, he wanted to buy a plot of land, and he still regrets that he didn't because it was all cheap. But um, the stories from the set kind of go that Hopkins, who had famously been a bit of an alcoholic, just read David Lynch's book if you want to hear about that in terms of The Elephant Man. Oh. Um he he had sobered up, but he was very worried about his young Fletcher Christian, Mel Gibson, because he was just out of control. Right. What Donaldson would say was, we found them in some places in French Polynesia that we shouldn't have. <laughs> no, isn't it funny? You've got Mel Gibson. I'm looking at him here, naked. Um, it, it, Australians all looked the same at this time. There was Pat Cash, who looked exactly like Mel Gibson, who looked exactly like Pat Rafter. Yep, yep, that's true. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess the cricketers were the only ones who didn't look quite the same, did they? Because they all had beards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It wasn't kind of the standard look. Yeah, all right. Give the man a tennis racket, it'd be in the Davis Cup for Australia, probably. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, well, that's a fascinating piece of... Um, and to remind us. working on a sequel. Yeah? Kind of. So someone's got a, um, a New Zealand guy who it was actually the head of a US studio for a while, uh, who's now, I think he's sold that off and now has got another one. He's uh, commissioned Roger Donaldson to direct a kind of spiritual sequel, which is kind of, you know, how the Christians all ended up on Pitkin Island, etc. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that could be interesting. I don't know that they'll get the same kind of cast. Yeah. Well, we were talking about Jeff Murphy the other day, and but Roger Donaldson's he's, he's right up there as well internationally. Oh, definitely. In fact, he probably has had the more successful overseas career. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. But he's also interspersed it by coming back and doing his kind of motorsport interest films here that have done quite well. (laughs) Vanity projects, you you would say. All right. Now, the the gods are conspiring just to annoy you, apparently. Yeah, that's right. Um, Look, it seems in the next month or so, 
that all my childhood traumas are coming back to haunt me. Bar Fantasia, but um, so not only is there a new version of uh, one of the movies that. Uh, haunted, I think, an entire generation of children, not because of Art Garfunkel's song. Uh, Watership Down is uh, being remade for Netflix and the BBC, and it's got a, a very impressive uh, audio car, a b- very impressive vocal cast. What's the story? I never saw it. I tried the stew. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's all about, basically, rabbits and rabbit gods. And, okay. But it was one of those animations which were, I guess, de rigueur in the late 70s. Does where... one of them get shot? Yeah, there's blood and guts uh, everywhere, uh, and it, uh, it is it is quite horrific. Okay, it's probably got one of the greatest scary-looking villains of all time. Okay, uh, yeah, it's just. Oh. I missed that meeting. Anyway, carry right, on. Yeah. Uh, the War of the Worlds is being remade by the BBC. It was more Jeff Wayne's rock album with all those oolahs, which kind of freaked me out with that one. Yeah, um, so War of the Worlds, as in, oh, has Jeff Wayne got anything to do with this? I hope not. Leave one alone. No. Know. No, no, Thank no, no. Thank you. No. The, um, I believe they've shifted it forward in time slightly. So uh, from the Victorian to the Edwardian, maybe? Yeah. They've, they've fiddled with the timescale, but it's the first really big-budget series version that isn't some cheap knockoff, you know, that's okay. tried to stay true to the novel. But I have heard a rumour that they don't use tripods, which is a little bit strange. Oh, no, you've got to have three legs, otherwise they wobble. Yeah. Now, the chances, it's funny how, you know, statistics don't really get a lot of look in in music, except for Jeff Wayne, because the chances of something coming from Mars, he tells us, are about a million to one, they say. <laughs> yes. Yes, had he stuck fast with that, hasn't he? Yeah. Look, everybody, there have been rumours of a animated movie related to that soundtrack for bloody decades, and it still hasn't happened. No, okay. Um, he's toured it around the world with kind of uh, proto-animation. He does live concerts. Uh, you know, he's trying to be the Hans Zimmer in that respect. He's done one record. That's it. It's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? I it's think just... he has done more, but they just weren't as wildly oh, no, crazy just... or successful. Don't the encourage him. them died out not long after that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, look, and one of the other ones is um, Rupert Everett's passion project uh, of about 20 years, I think, The Happy Prince. Oh, yes. Now, now, there's probably a generation of listeners as well who owned the record of, uh, was it Happy Prince? And I can't remember what the other story, was it The Giant's Garden? No, I don't know. Uh, it was a 33, and it had one story on each side, and God, you were in tears if you were a kid under a certain age because of The Happy Prince story. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yes. Um, so I was just feeling traumatised about moving rocks, uh, monoliths in, in the backyard. The, the, of a uh, certain science, science fiction movie in the days when scaring kids shitless was the thing the BBC did with pride. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Is that you? I think it is. What's your favourite movie of the 21st century? Oh, well, that's a good question. Look, if, if I had to say the movie that kind of, kind of set me crazy and kind of opened up new kind of ideas and stuff. And it seems hokey now, but having said that, 17 years on, we've got this massive renaissance. I'd have to say Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge. Now, I know a lot of people hate it, but this idea of 
the jukebox musical and, and using lyrics and interspersing all these, you know, great songs of, well, some people may say they're not, but the songs of the 70s and 80s and creating a sort of story around it was amazing. Now, when the box office comes out at the end of the year, there are going to be about two big Marvel movies. Then there are going to be like four musicals, Graham. Oh, good four God. Four musicals in the top ten, which is kind of horrific. Moulin Rouge, Moulin Rouge, are we talking Nicky? We're, we're talking Nicole Kidman. You oh, and yeah, the people who know her call her Nicky. Sorry, yeah, oh, yeah Nicole. Yeah, yeah. She, she was in that, wasn't she? Okay. Yeah, so. she and Ewan McGregor, and yeah. she was the courtesan or whatever. But look, you know, best use ever of Queen's The Show Must Go On, mm. as sung by Jim Broadbent, um, you know, just... It's just mad in a lot of ways, and it was Lerman at the height of his kind of visual nuttiness and mm. things. Look, there are, there are movies that have been far more fated and far, and are probably far better made and far greater in terms of the storytelling. But just as a, a kind of piece of art and crazy cinema and just entertaining fun ride, I have to I have to go with that. Okay, well, mine would be uh, it's too difficult for me to watch again because it's a documentary by David Lynch called Mulholland Drive, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's appalling, appallingly good. Uh, difficult watch. Well, and, of course, I've told you this story, and I've probably told listeners before. Well, when I took my wife to that, we had to go home and watch You've Got Mail for an hour after we saw it, just so recover she felt that everything was right with the world. Yeah, still. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. God, he's good. Uh, anyway. Uh, my favourite moment in cinema, actually, I dumped Tatum O'Neill. Ah, okay. She was filming in Auckland, um, and she pashed me, and I said, that's it, you're dumped, because it's never going to get any better than that. Nothing's ever going to happen. Wow. Yeah, and that's it. I said, no, nah, that's it, you're over. You're yeah. dumped. So there you go, straight away. Amazing. Have you been in the movie? No, I've, I've, other than student films, I think we won a Mothra back in the 90s or something. Oh, that's, that's better oh, than anything. Oh, What Now presenter, does that count? Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant, of course it does. <laughs> James, you've been fabulous. Thank uh, you so much for everything. It's been an honour. Okay, well, um, it's been an honour having you uh, as a, a correspondent. As it has, Max Cryer and... He's ready to go, straining at the leash, and we'll explain why we say harebrained and the bizarre origin of getting your goat or someone gets something gets my goat. Uh, it's probably not what you think. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of peace, words to... Max, Max, Maxity Max, lovely to see you again. Maxity, I always wonder where you get that from. It's just for the rhythm. Oh, I see. Yes, Maxity. Yes, rhythm, rhythm governs a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and just having a look at the sheet which I have just turned over for our words this week. Oh, you're firing off with Christmas. I thought Christmas was a word we could look at. Yes. So let's go. Let's go. Well, it's two words, actually. Um, Christ Mass. And the early versions of the word date back to the first time it was noted in English, which was in 1038, many years ago. Mm -hmm. When it first appeared in English, it was Christus, which is the Greek word for anointed. And that's joined to the Latin word misa, which relates to um, the Jewish... 
um, blessing which Jesus gave to God, proclaiming God's work of creation and redemption. Uh, Jesus is recorded using this word while celebrating the ceremony of the Passover, which all Jews have celebrated for centuries before Jesus and all the centuries after. So you have Christmas joined together. It's become a noun and it's really changed its meaning entirely because while it used to refer to the holy part of Christmas, it's really become a sort of a, an excuse for advertising and for selling. But in addition to the word Christmas, this day or this season has been known by various other names, such as the word nativity. Now, nativity is Latin for birth in Old English. And the word Yule, Yule is an ancient German word which was used hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And it's the old word for festivals conducted in midwinter, December and January. So it's time of the year, Yule time. And as the concept of worshiping Jesus grew, the word gradually became associated with the customs of observing Christianity during those northern cold months. And you also hear the word Noel. You've heard the word Noel, haven't Noel. you? Noel, yep, Noel. Well, that came into English in the 1300s from the French, who borrowed it from the Latin natalis, meaning birth. So, as the concept of worshipping Jesus grew and spread through several centuries, these old words from Latin, French, Hebrew and Greek became associated with the religion known as Christianity. Though one has to observe that in the current century, the word Christmas has been taken over as a commercial incentive to sell and buy. And the old, old meaning in some ways has faded into second place. Right. Yeah, but Christmas was actually grabbed by the Christians because of convenience. Um, and someone else is celebrating something at the same time and they thought, oh, right, we'll have this Christmassy thing. Christmas was cancelled for a long time too in England, wasn't it, with the Puritans? Well, are you telling me a history that I didn't know? Oh, really? <laughs> the point out that it's also your opinion. <laughs> um, uh, it's a slightly more than opinion. Um, the Scots never been big on Christmas. Even now? Not as much as Hogman, eh? No. Oh. No, I think it was only 1954 when it was a proper holiday um, in in Scotland. So, yeah, they've never really been that big on Christmas. It's it's the tides come in now, and they I, do the, the same thing as everybody else. I have a else. theory that the whole concept of Christmas has altered in warm climates in the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, yeah. You know, the feverish use of the word Christmas in our country mm -hmm. is largely associated with selling things. Yeah. And, of course, the season that we call Christmas lasts quite a lot longer, whereas in cold countries, it's sort of three days. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole lot that's not Jesus-y, too, about Christmas. <laughs> well, I don't think Christians think there should be things that aren't Jesus-y, but you said it, not me. Yeah, well, Christmas tree. There you go. What's that doing inside? N nothing to do with no, Jesus. No, no, exactly. All right. Now, a silly idea can sometimes be called harebrained, Max. This is, so this is rather unfair. That's H-A-R-E. Oh. It's hair the animal. Yes, it's hair the animal, not hair as in hair on your head. This is a, the poor creature, the hair over the centuries has been the focus of various unsettling beliefs. For instance, uh, some people say if a hair crosses your path, you will have bad luck. Or that witches are able to turn themselves into hares. Oh, that, yeah, we know that. Oh, we know that, do mm. we? Or eating the flesh of a hair could cause melancholy. 
or that the figure you can see on the moon's surface is actually a hare, because that's where hares come from. And for many centuries, hares have been thought skittish. This is mainly because they have a peculiar loping kind of articulated leap, and also possible because they become very flighty and erratic in their mating season, which in the north, north part of the world is in March. And writers have been identifying this skittishness for about 500 years. The first known printing of the phrase hare-brained, H-A-R-E-brained, was in 1548. And the notion of mating skittishness was well established by 1868 when Lewis Carroll immortalised the image of the mad March hare, mm. who was definitely hare-brained. There's no evidence that hares are any more silly than anything else. But the poor things have that reputation, even among people who've never even seen one. I don't know if I've seen a hare. I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Do we have them? Yes, we do. And you, you probably could tell the difference because they lope. Oh. They're, they're slightly different shape from a rabbit. Well, if I knew before I saw one, I could tell the difference. <laughs> Otherwise, if they all look, I think that's a bloody rabbit. Well... Re the, the body movement of a rabbit when it's moving fast is quite different from the movement of a hare right. if you're able to see two of them. Right, right. Yeah, I saw a witch turn into a hare at the Greyland Festival, actually. That was the last time I saw that happen. So a that's... witch turned into a hare? Yeah, just right in front of my eyes. But you eyes. said you'd never seen a hare. You saw a woman turn into one? Yeah. Well, that was the first time I saw one. She did lope away. I thought she turned into a rabbit. But oh, now that you said oh. this, I know it was actually a hare. Were you alone or did other people see this happen? Oh, no. It was a whole show. Really? Mm. Was it a rather big hare that she turned into? Mm, no, just a small one that ran away, loped away. Was she Everyone said, there we go, another witch turning into a hare. She must have been a small witch to begin with. Mm. No, they can do all sorts of things. They can shrink. Oh, I see. Well, I'm most interested to know that, but um, <clears throat> let us hope that she wasn't hare-brained. No. Well, she must have been post the transformation. All right. Uh, now, a sports field, why is it called a pitch? Somebody asks. This is a good one, yes. When someone brought this up, I was really intrigued because I'd noticed the use and wondered myself why it happened, so I had to look it up, you know, for the benefit of the listeners. Why is a sports field called a pitch? Well, it comes, the word pitch comes from a very old English word, pitchin, which, wait for this, means to drive or fix firmly. And that word was used to describe thrusting a stake or pole into the ground, which is why we talk about pitching a tent. Oh, because you have to have one very firm pole, at least one, to hold it. You have to pitch it into the ground. You'd think so. Now Otherwise, that... it's just crawling under a blanket. Yes, exactly. You have to pitch it properly. Now, that usage of firmly fixing something into the ground gradually moved into the terminology of cricket, where setting up the playing area required knocking the sets of stumps into the ground, driving them and fixing them firmly, mm -hmm. like you did with the tent pole. Mm -hmm. Thus, by the late 1600s, this was referred to as pitching the stumps. Now, over the following hundred years, the word pitch gradually grew in area, and by 1870, the word pitch meant the whole playing area of a cricket game. It didn't take long from then, about 1900, that games of football soccer started to use the same term to describe the playing area, and gradually the term pitch came into use also to mean the rugby field, either league or union. Um, I just saw the other day a reference to Eden Park in Auckland being referred to as a pitch. The term and the use of it are very rare in America, almost never used at all. 
because their playing area for American football and baseball is normally called a field. Incidentally, just as a sort of a throwaway, baseball is not an American invention. Oh, really? No, it was being played in England years before it was established in America. British author Jane Austen, one of the most famous British authors, she wrote in 1803 about her characters playing baseball in England. The game didn't reach America until 40 years after that. So, back to the word pitch. It has two other meanings, and they're both connected with the original basic idea of something being firmly fixed in place. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, in holiday areas, a tent can be pitched, meaning firmly fixed into the ground, and a travelling salesman or a temporary stand in a local fairground is called a pitch because it's only temporary, but it's firmly in place during the time it's used, and from it, the salesman delivers a sales pitch striving to establish firmly the value of what he's selling. And that term, sales pitch, has now widened considerably, includes all kinds of advertising which makes extravagant claims for the product in fine, definite terms. Even in a framework as ephemeral as a TV commercial can be said to be selling or pitching yeah. an idea. And another meaning, which is also related, strange enough, is pitch in music. In music, the term pitch names the firmly fixed, defined sound frequency of notes, their pitch. And before anybody asks, black tar is often called pitch, and there is absolutely no explanation as to why. Really? No one knows why black tar is called pitch. It has nothing to do with putting up a tent or pitching your voice to sing a note. It just is out, of the, out on its own. Wow, that's kind of cool. It's like a tuatara. Is it? How does it compare with the Tuatara? All, all out on its own, on an evolutionary tree. Oh, yeah. yes, it's not related yes. to anybody or anything. Well, nothing that's alive much. Although we are all related. No, that was a terrible analogy. It's nothing like a Tuatara at all. That's what I meant to say. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Right. Um, later <coughs> on this evening, we're going to be chatting with the author Joanna Mathers. She's done this book, and I think you might have some interest in what it is about backstage passes. Passes to get backstage and visit somebody. That's what the title is. You hand the marketing the... department come up with titles of books, Max. You know that. It can yes, tell you barely be anything about it. There's some vague connection with the story. You'd think it? so. <laughs> the Untold Story of New Zealand's Live Music Venues, 1960 to 1990. During the commercial break, have a little flick through and see if you get any um, nostalgic feelings or some stories uh, from some of those venues. You would have been there, Max. At a pinch, we'll have a look. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Max Cryer answering your questions on words, their meaning, and origin. And, of course, Max Cryer, famous entertainer over a long period of time in New Zealand, especially Auckland. But, um, oh, no, throughout New Zealand, really. Uh, Backstage Passes, this book about venues, 1960 to 1990, music venues. Um, anything familiar in there, Max, from the 60s or 70s? Well, um, I think... Or 80s or 90s? Almost anybody who's been in entertainment in New Zealand has occasionally at some time or other performed in one of these venues. Uh, but let us, um, let us mention that the venues and the music it is talking about is entirely microphone-amplified music. Yeah. And the um, forward, which is, why, thank goodness, is by Andrew Fake, 
Reagan, who knows what he's talking about. And he says a real live band is conspicuous because people bother to go and see them perform live. And that is the litmus test. But, of course, that was certainly the case in, in his career. Mm. Still is. What about the venues, though? You would have been to some of these, wouldn't you? Um, yes, I have. I remember the I remember the Beatle Inn. I don't know that I actually performed there, but it was sort of quite famous. Yeah. And the Monaco, I've actually performed at the Monaco. You know, when but I did was you hang out there and go and see other people? No. The short answer is no. Oh, really? But I was occasionally engaged to perform there. Oh. Um, I'm not a fan of amplification. Oh. And um, most of this book, well, it's very cleverly put together and has good illustrations. All right. But it is about microphone music, not, yeah. not about unamplified music. Right. Swinging 60s, though, would have been fun. You went and saw the Beatles? They were amplified? I did, yes, I saw the Beatles. Mind you, the, the amplification of the Beatles, which was four microphones on stage and that was it, uh. was there were no tricks. It was just an enlarged sound of what they were doing. Um, now, I mean, four people on the stage would have about, you know, oh, enormous yes. amplification. Oh, yeah, and a computer behind them to make everybody sing in tune. Yes, yes, but, but I did see the Beatles when they came to New right. Zealand. And, and it was an exciting night. It was lovely. The place was packed to the roof and they were delightful. All right. Good one. All right, we'll get on to your specialist subject then. Who invented the term, somebody has asked, a has-been? Well, there's a famous poem. When I say famous, it's famous amongst sort of show business people. And for anyone listening who doesn't know it, we'll just do a verse of it to show you. Oh, OK. A has-been. That's a song that was composed in 1934. You may have heard of it because it's a lovely title. Nobody loves a fairy when she's 40. That's the name of the song. Oh, <laughs> I know it's sad. Isn't it's it? absolutely <laughs> appalling. And it's done often done on the stage by a very clever actress singer who is no longer young, but who sort of gets away with it. Madonna. Here are the words. Joan Rivers. More like Joan Rivers. <laughs> Nobody loves a fairy when she's forty. Nobody loves a fairy when she's old. She may still have magic power, but that is not enough. They like their bit of magic from a younger bit of stuff. When once your silver star has lost its glitter and your tinsel looks like rust instead of gold, fairy days are ending when your wand has started bending. No one loves a fairy when she's old. When your shining curls are withered and your wings refuse to flap, you stand there shouting, "Whato!" but they all pass by your grotto. I can't do all I used to, but I'm satisfied because I'd sooner be a has-been than I would a never was. Oh, very nice. It's nice good. nice rhyme for the end. Yes. I like it when rhymes are surprising oh. rather than bloody obvious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure whoever wrote that song will be pleased to know it. Yeah. Good. All right. So that was the first use of has been. Um, no, I can't well, I can't say it was the first. It was the, the, it was the use that came to mind when the oh, question okay. came in because most people somewhere along their life have heard somebody singing that song. Mm -hmm. Okay. How did we get the word turncoat? Ah, this is actually very straightforward, you'll be pleased to know. A turncoat is a person who changes sides in a dispute. He seems to, he, she seems to betray those agreed with earlier. The word's been in use since the mid-1500s and is believed to have originated from the sleeveless fabric tunic which military men wore over their armour. It was called a tabard, and it had the coat of arms or regimental affiliation embroidered on the front. Men who, for whatever reason, decided to disassociate themselves with the side they were fighting for could take their tabard off, turn it inside out and put it on again, 
so there was no coat of arms showing and they could quite literally turn their coat and thus walk away from their former colleagues and there's an additional legend that a certain Duke of Saxony had estates which went over the French border and he had a coat made which had French insignia on one side and German insignia on the inside. Oh, handy. Yes, so when he left his land, depending which authority he was dealing with, he would cross the border into the part of his authority which was in the other country and he would take his coat off and put it on back to front mm -hmm. and demonstrate that he was loyal to the French or to the Germans. So going back to square one, turncoat usually indicates someone whose affiliation is not stable, but it comes from the fact that you could actually take your tabard off, right. turn it inside out and put it back on and it would show a different symbol on the inside. Tabard, not a word I use frequently in December? Well, not a word that the military uses anymore at all, I oh, think. Yeah. It, it's a, uh, it means a piece of cloth with a hole in it and you put your head through the hole. Right, that'll do. Hangs in the front and hangs in the back. Okay. Uh, now, somebody's asking, get my goat. This is charming. I really enjoyed doing this. How did the expression get my goat arise? Well, it's, it means to be cross about something. But, the listener said, why does it involve a goat? Well, it also involves racehorses. It's well known, I'm told, that horses are not normally solitary creatures. They appear to be more relaxed and contented when there's company around of some sort. In the early days of American race meetings, race horses were kept in expensive and secure stabling. It wasn't always convenient to put another horse in with them. But horse owners frequently stalled their best horses with a goat, who is likewise a creature who likes a chat. So the horse and the goat would become accustomed to being together and sometimes an unscrupulous gambler who had reason to want a particular horse to perform badly, the night before the race he would steal the goat. What? Thus, on the day of the race, the horse would become edgy and off form because its buddy wasn't there. It's goat buddy. It's goat buddy. And that is believed to be where the phrase originated. The I don't believe well, it. Well, it's the only explanation I could find. The racehorse was grumpy huh? because someone had got its goat. Right. It's charming. I thought it was charming. It is charming, isn't it? Because the, there wasn't enough room for two horses, but a horse and a goat, and they each sort of mm. accepted each other. Yeah. That's probably why the Lone Ranger needed somebody else, not just Tonto, but the scout, Tonto's horse, to keep Silver in good company. Yes, well, that's not impossible. I'm not familiar with the details of the Lone Ranger, but I'm sure you are. So you're saying there were two horses? Well, there were. Lone Ranger and Tonto. Yeah. Tonto's horse was scout. Lone Ranger's horse was... Hi-ho! Well, there were Silver. Two... Yes. Yes, yeah. so two horses. Yes. But the funny thing is, he's called the Lone Ranger. And, and there were three others, two horses and one other man. Yes. He not only had a horse for company, he had Tonto. Went with him everywhere. Got up to all sorts of stuff. I'm with a, the Lone Ranger, the not-so-Lone Ranger. Well, I'm guessing here, and I could well be wrong because I haven't researched it, but the word Ranger does have a sort of echo about it of being a group of men, like Rangers in America. I but think it's Lone Ranger it. singular, a large. not Lone Rangers. <laughs> and also... Uh, um, he wore that silly mask, apparently to um, hide his identity. Yes. Right? He hides He's it. the only one with the stupid mask on. He walks into a saloon mm. somewhere in Carson City trying to find a bad guy. 
the disguise isn't working, Mr. Ranger. Everyone can tell you're the Lone Ranger because you're the only one with the silly mask on. But if the, you took the mask off, it would be much better disguise. Because they had never seen him without the mask. Yeah, exactly. Oh, who's the Lone Ranger? Oh, I don't know who he is. Could have, he be that man with the mask on over there? Graham, have you told the author of the Lone Ranger any of these observations that you have? Yeah, I have, actually, and totally agreed. Yeah, the, agreed, but ignored. No, no, agreed. <laughs> Apologise profusely. <laughs> Not alone. It's like the three musketeers. There are freaking four of them. The four. And of them, none yes. of them have got a musket. They've all got swords. Yes, yes. Well, you can't trust anybody. The four can you? swordsmen. Yeah. Not the three musketeers. Well, I want to say thank you to a listener who sent me a most intriguing book. Lone Ranger, my ass. <laughs> And the list of the, the book the listener sent me was called I Before E Except After C. That's weird. Well, it was aimed at pedants like me who spend their life sorting out what's correct and what isn't. Mm. Um, I Before E Except After C is an old, old rule. You'll find the I, be, I Before E in Believe, in Fierce, in Collie, Die, Friend and Species. And then you find when it's after C, it becomes E-I, as in Receive, Sealing, Receipt, Caffeine and Kaylee. There are exceptions. Exceptions. Caffeine is an exception. Perceive is an exception. Deceit is a, an exception. Recipe and sealing. The word sealing. Weird. And I have. And weird's an I, exception. I, again, I reinforce. Isn't it? Am I spelling I, it wrong? I no. didn't. I didn't hear you. Weird. E I. Well, now this is the point I'm just about to gently make. Oh, okay. Um, the, the book is intriguing, and it's called I Before E Except After C, but it gives a lot of exceptions. And I think since the book was published, I understand that the rule is being withdrawn for the simple reason that the I Before E Except After C has so many exceptions. There are dozens of words. You just thought of one straight away. So, But indeed, the book he sent me isn't all about that. It's about other things as okay. well, so I'm enjoying it. Oh, lovely. So it's overtaken the rule. There are more exceptions than there are. Yes, well, rules. possibly yeah. because of bor words borrowed from other languages, like caffeine is hardly... Right, a lot of chemicals. Yes, chemicals. Indeed, yeah, yes. yeah. How yeah. right you are. Okay. Uh, where did the name Invercargill come from? This is nice, isn't it? You say the name quite happily when you're speaking about Invercargill, but oh. I've never known anyone ask why is it called Invercargill. Well, there's Mount Cargill. That, well, it's um, moons over Dunedin. Well, there's a um, there was a gold rush in Otago, and the region's population had grown during the 1860s with the settlement of Bluff. And in 1856, it was put to Thomas Gore Brown, who was the governor of New Zealand, that a port should be established. And Governor Brown agreed to the petition, and the settlement was established, and it was given the name Invercargill. Inver is Scottish Gaelic, Inbeir, meaning mouth of a river. And Cargill was in honour of Captain William Cargill, who oh. was the superintendent of Otago. And Southland was then a part of that. So the city of Invercargill was established, and it is one of the southernmost cities in the world. Yeah, I suppose it, it has is. wonderful streets. It has nice yeah, wide streets, Calvin Street. Yes. Yeah. And when you think of the traffic snarl-ups in cities like Auckland, I don't think it could happen in Invercargill because there is free space on the streets. Yeah, the, the museum's very good too. Yes, yes. Um, Lots of shipwreck stuff there. And Tuataras. Really? Now, December the 17th, the day after tomorrow, mm. 
is the 105th anniversary of the world-famous poet Rupert Brooke. Oh. Rupert Brooke arrived in New Zealand in 1913, but it was apparently a mistake. He wrote a letter to a friend saying, Why precisely I am here, I don't know. I seem to have missed a boat somewhere. However, since he was stuck in New Zealand, he did visit Rotorua, and he wrote another letter saying, New Zealand is a queer place. If you walk along the road and happen to look down at the puddles, you will notice that they keep bubbling. But Mr. Brooks survived long enough to write one of the most famous lines in British literature. Quote, if I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. But apparently, in his opinion, that did not include New Zealand. Oh, okay. Max, thank you for everything over all the years. Oh, you were so much help with the um, uh, playground lyrics thing. Doing that was fabulous. The playground lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Pull down your pants and fertilise the ants in an English country garden. <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> On oh, the elastic pants. We three kings of Leicester Square, selling ladies' underwear. How fantastic, no elastic, not very safe to wear. And um, the wind went up his trousers. That was great as well. Father was a soldier at the Battle of Waterloo. The wind blew up his trousers and he didn't know what to do. Well, I suppose it's nice to be remembered, Graham. Sometimes one feels a little doubt about the things one is remembered for. Jesus Christ, superstar, went round the corner on a Yamaha. Cops are there, he don't care. He's wearing supersonic underwear. And I just want to play a little thing from Dame Edna Everidge. It's really short because I didn't get a lot of time with her. Uh, you'll, you'll hear her arrive in a taxi. And, um, and I, I mentioned Max, and Dame Edna said, I'm going to dinner with Max this week, and he deserves a knighthood. Dame Edna Everidge is about to arrive just outside the Auckland Town Hall. And it looks like she's in a taxi about to come out. First media scrum. Yeah, there is a media scrum for Dame Edna. I'm trying to get... They're much sought after getting out of the taxi shot. Let's see if I can get that particular shot and be able to Photoshop in some Britney Spears. And she looks very, very glamorous indeed. Taxi, not a limousine. And her Edna is now appearing to the assembled media scrum. They gave me a limo and I dismissed it. I said, I just want to come like an ordinary member of the public. <laughs> I am proud of Melbourne and of my Australian roots, but I've always had connections with New Zealand. Mad war song. From Palmerston North, where John Clark comes from, as you possibly know. Well, I think this is now your time, Damien. You've got heaps of people who want to ask questions. No, so. they won't. They haven't got a single question in their heads to ask. Have you got a message oh. for your Australian?